views and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil. When the feast that feeds you starves our father's children. When snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer feared, if his protection is gone and your enemies are near, if you've seen the seas spill over and the mountains shake, break, and fall, if the moon ever turns blood red and you can't see the sun at all, rise up, no matter if the prize is high in the skies. Peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network. A program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st century legalized slavery. Currently hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas with Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is the August 16th, 2017 broadcast of New Abolitionist Radio. We're only three days away from the Millions for Prisoners March on Washington, August 19th, the largest national gathering of slavery abolitionists in U.S. history. We are four days past a fatal gathering of racist white supremacists and and nouveau Nazis in Charlottesville, Virginia, a group that has had the public sympathy and support of the President of the United States. Rest in peace, Heather Hare. On this day in 1970, activist Angela Davis was named in a federal warrant issued in connection with George Jackson's attempted escape from San Quentin Prison. We are one day past the August 15, 1824 anniversary when freed American slaves established the country of Liberia on the west coast of Africa and two days removed from August 14, 1791, and the ceremony Bois Kayiman, the beginning of the Haitian Revolution. Today is our last broadcast prior to the August 19th March and Rally. We're opening the lines for the whole show and inviting organizers and supporters nationwide to join in the conversation. Our abolitionist in profile will be Henry Highland Garnet, 1815-1882, the author of Garnet's Call to Rebellion. He reminds us that in every man and man pillows down so low as to make him contented with a condition of slavery commits the highest crime against God and man. Our writer of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is Ryan Matthews, who spent five years on Louisiana's death row for a crime he did not commit. 17 years old at the time he was arrested, Matthews was sentenced to death. In January of 2007, DNA testing results both exonerated Matthews and revealed the identity of the actual perpetrator. In the segment, For Freedom's Sake, A History of Rebellion, 
we will be remembering one of the most important events in the history of the African diaspora. August 14th, 1791, as I said, ceremony, the beginning of the Haitian Revolution. Beginning next week, we will incorporate a new limited series segment hosted by Youssef Hassan, which will focus on explaining the amendments in the Bill of Rights and the Constitution. Have a question or comment? You can call toll-free from the USA at 1-866-510-9025, 1-866-510-9025. You can chat with us and others by logging in at uberconference.com slash Network. Once again, I'm Max Parks. What's happening, Brother Scotty Reed? I'm good, Max. Uh, need to unmute myself. All right. Yeah, I'm good, Max. I'm here. Sorry about that. Uh, feeling, feeling that little injury I had earlier, that little tweak to my back, trying to manhandle that generator, man. That thing was heavy. So uh, excuse me if I move a little slow tonight. Feel you, brother. Uh, as a person who suffers from bad back, I know what you're talking about, as we discussed earlier. It's a it's a wild time right now, man. It really isn't a just a roller coaster. You know, I was calm all the time, all the way up, other than being pissed off, which is you know more or less my natural state. But all the way up until now, and then I just started going through these emotional roller coasters while uh, sitting here thinking about how we got to where we are at right now. You know what I mean? And all the things that have occurred along the way, all the things we've reported on and been a part of and, uh, you know, just witnessed here in, in this time, at this place. And it is pretty damn amazing, man. Uh, it's damn amazing. And I think what touched me the most was thinking about the two people who I am going to dedicate what I say that day, at August 19th in D.C. Uh, I'm going to dedicate my words to them. And that's the uh, the young boy who I knew, who I grew up in the same town with, uh, first of all, would be Lawrence Myers, who was shot in the back of the head by a rookie policeman and got off scot-free. And that started me on this quest. You know, I want to know why, and that's why I'm here today. And the other one would be Kajambi Powell. You remember Kajambi Powell. He, he sacrificed his life just to show you how cheap and easy they would take it from him. And this was during the time of the Mike Brown incident in this very same area, so, and, and it occurred. So it was overlooked much, but that changed me, Scotty, I believe. And thinking about those two cases uh, really brought it home. How about you, man? How about me? What's the question? Um, what are the things that are you, you're like driving you right now? What's going through your heart and mind uh, so close to the event? You know, this is our last broadcast prior to the march. Um, some of the things that's on my mind. Yes. I mean, it's it's just a whole lot, Max. Uh, the way I, t I take the long view, Max. And so um, I'm not really weighed down at emotion at this point or by emotion right now. At, but it's nothing specific that's going through my mind that stands out over the years except for, you know, it's been a long time <laughs> coming and who knows what happened on that day and what can happen like you mentioned things can be fluid so you know I'm just trying to get this job done right right here right now um, already got here the critics out there they say talking about symbolism and 
things of that nature. And we always hear the naysayers who always saying no to everything, but you know, I'm not hearing about the moves they making in the streets. So if you can't, as they, as the elders would say, if you don't have nothing good to say, then, and you're not doing anything towards the goals that you talk about, then just don't say anything about some, what somebody else is doing. As long as they trying to do something positive, if you've been there, done that, and it don't work, then let some people have to learn that way. They they don't take no for an answer. They have to figure things out for themselves and then see for themselves whether or not this, that, or the other uh, won't work. So to me, man, it's just about getting this job done, man. I'm focusing on the details of what needs to happen on Saturday in terms Would you like to share the victory that you achieved uh, with the fundraiser? And that was an amazing feat of effort. And talk about good things. That's, you know, thanks to the supporters of New Abolitionist Radio and the Black Talk Radio Network, we were able to achieve the goal that we had set. Right. But there's even sadness in that. That although we reached, man, how many people have we reached over five? Oh, Scotty. Oh, there you go. Are you not able to hear me? I can hear you now. And it's an echo. So I think someone else may be on with us. No, uh, it's just your line and my line. Uh, I mean, yeah, uh, Max, again, you know, I'm just right now just focused on, on somebody. I mean, if you... That was a victory, but the double-edged sword is it shouldn't have took that long, man. And that few people, 30, what was it? Maybe 40. i say 40 generously. 40 people donated that $1,800 to make it happen. Some gave more than, than others. Some gave what they could give. And and so there's no measurement in, in the giving. But when you consider how many people this station reaches, and New Abolitionist Radio, how how many people it has reached and the work it has put in, you would think there would be more support. But there's not. But that doesn't get me down because I don't believe, as somebody reminded me earlier today, in the Black Unity Unicorn. I never really followed that the, that that uh, philosophy anyway because I like kind of like motto... Um, I like the way that Malcolm X was going in the direction in his life so in life and his social politics where he was focusing on um, human rights as opposed to civil rights and working with anybody as long as they was trying to change you know the situation that was going going on so I worked with anybody and so I never believed in the one, 100% black unity unicorn man how many people does that mean does that mean we got to sit around waiting for 40 million people to get on board with abolishing slavery before we make any moves? Do, does that mean that we turn away any allies who could provide resources, whereas we know the uh, economic disparities in this country? So I, I, I'm saying I just I don't believe in that unicorn. So, But... What this showed me, though, which has been shown time and time again, it don't take no 100%. It don't take 75%. It don't take 60%. It don't take 25% of the people to bring about real change. In terms of revolution, and I kind of feel like we involved in revolutionary resistance media and trying to take people's minds 
and intellect on these various issues, you know, different offering a new or different perspective that's not being offered to them by the main by the mainstream. So, you know, um, most revolutions only five percent is is a number that was cited to me. Five percent of the population. So that just goes to show you, though, when you have tasks and you have goals, you know, you're not going to get 100% unity. Some people might ask, well, I got all these different friends and followers and consumers and, and this, that, and the other. The people downloading this, that, and the other. We don't know what their individual situation is. And some people, you know, like Dave Atando Radio Show said, you know, they just into eating the fruit. And they they don't want to feed the roots because they figure somebody else got it. So forty people got um, New Abolitionist Radio's Carolina contingent to Washington D.C. Uh, help provide them with the uh, sound equipment, generator, and and you know the um, man and woman power as well. So yeah, I mean that's a victory. But you know, um, man. I'm just looking forward to the day like when you wrote about the day slavery ended and people being put on trial. So we're a long way from that goal right there. That's the ultimate goal. The goal is to free the, free the enslaved and end slavery so it's not codified in no kind of law or, or anything like that, but also put the human rights violations on, on trial like a Nuremberg-like trial. That would be awesome. You know, I'm very happy grateful <clears throat> I don't know what to do about that echo disc okay it's gone I'm very happy and grateful for the 40 people that did make it happen there's 40 people we can count on for sure and uh, in the future I think after this message gets out there will likely be more but there's 40 people that put their, their money where their mouth is and I am forever grateful for that we got it done thanks to the most high who turned them into angels for a time So yeah, man, it's it's been some stressful things. Like for me, you know, I did the Ohio trip just recently, and we was out there with uh, Malika G and Adrian Hood, who had both lost children to police violence, and uh, we did the panels out there, and then came back here to prepare for this event that's coming up now. And I'm a poet, so you know I'm a sensitive son of a something. <laughs> you know, I'm sensitive to these things, and then I'm watching them do to me and everybody around me. Right now, what they did after the Trayvon Martin killing, you know, when the media just took this and turned it into something that they could generate as much money as they possibly can and use it as a political weapon against their enemies. And meanwhile, it was torture to us, you know, and it's torture now. I can't believe the president of the United States sitting up there talking about nice Nazis. I I mean, uh, huh? But, you know, we expected him to be a bad guy. But Lord, nice Nazis, Scotty. Is that what we we got in this country now? My great uncle, who raised me, the only father I really know, is in a nursing home now, and he's too far away for me to visit on a regular basis. So basically, he's dying alone, and he is a World War II veteran. And I'm supposed to go tell him the next time I see him, you know what? There were some nice Nazis, <laughs> you know. There were some nice Nazis, so you didn't have to go to war. Anyway, Scotty, there we have it. If you're listening, if you're on the line, you want to tune in, today is the People's Show. So the People's Program and the People Can Talk, 
just unmute yourself press, pressing star star state your name where you're coming from and your comments or questions and we'll talk from there we got some stories of course got this week there are so many things that have occurred that we could never touch on them all but we'll try to share as many as we can uh throughout the evening anybody on the line there scotty yeah there's a couple of people that's on the line others are listening uh but right. yeah we do invite you to call in uh max if you want to get that number out yes it's 866-510-9025 i got a message earlier today scotty from kenya uh again i think that's one of the things that touched me while i'm so sensitive all these things simultaneously happening but, you know, we've got allies all across Africa. And today someone reached out to me from Kenya to say, you know, we're listening to you in Kenya. And we love what you're talking about. We learned a lot about the race problem that's going on in the States and to keep doing what we're doing. So that's, that's beautiful. You said you wanted to talk to, about something in particular that you're dealing with, Scotty, as far as calling out some of these perpetrators of frauds. Uh, a man who's selling a book, I, I believe you told me by the name of The Big Lie, and he is himself someone who has been prosecuted for lying and convicted for lying and served time for lying, who is, uh, I think you said he's an abolitionist. So that was no, part of the me no, off. I didn't say he was no abolitionist. Oh, okay. I said he was a propagandist. A propagandist. Okay, okay. Yeah, he's yeah, a well-known right that now. What's that? We're dealing with a lot of propagandists right now who are feeding a lot of fallacies out there. I mean, propaganda 24-7. Anytime you turn on the television, you're being bombarded with propaganda, and that's been going on nonstop since the advent of television and radio. So that's every day. That's 24-7. But this guy is a right-wing... He's like, the way I can describe this guy is like a professional liar. He's too intelligent. He's from Bombay, India. That's where he was born. Dinesh D'Souza is his name. He's not named for that Obama anti-Obama uh, movie where he played off Obama's book title, Dreams from My Father, something like that, where he tried to portray Barack Obama as this this mild mild communist rebel or something. And in in Kenya, cause that's where his father was from, and how he went and traveled. So that's what he now. That's what how he really got some stardom in the GOP and on Fox News, and and um, I guess he'd be on other outlets as well. But yeah, this guy was convicted of campaign finance uh, violations. Um, you're only let's say I don't know what it was in New York but let's say it's capped out I can't get any more to an individual's campaign for Senate for Congress for I mean representatives House of Representatives for President say an individual contribution caps out at $8,000 and so I've given my $8,000 I wrote a check to the person campaign but then I go and get several of my friends who had no intentions of donating or anything like that. They're called like straw men. And I get I give them the funds, the uh, $8,000, and then they make the donation in their own name. So that's what he was convicted of, campaign finance fraud. So fraud is lying. So he's a convicted liar. And I follow a lot of these people on Twitter. Sometimes I have to like, he is particularly annoying. 
Because I'm like, he must have a staff of people he didn't hire on Fiverr or something. And 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 they're just tweeting 24-7 because this guy is 24-7 unless he got some automated uh, stuff going on, which is, is highly possible. But it's nonstop propaganda from him where he just stoking that right wing, that, that white supremacy, just right it up to that line, that whole out alt-right. So now they're trying to flip the script and try to come up with this alt-left. And I saw he was tweeting about that. And he has a new book out called The Big Lie. Well, everybody know Big... Not everybody, but The Big Lie is a theory of Adolf Hitler's. And he said, if you tell a, tell a lie big enough, the people will believe him. It's called The Big Lie. You know, uh, uh they will believe the biggest lies out there. And we all know that's to be true, especially if you control the the uh, mass media communications like the Nazis did in Germany, like, you know, certain elements have here in the United States. And globally, it's, it's all white supremacist-based uh, media, or I should, I should say racist media, anti-black media, all right? Uh, but this Nazi stuff, uh, this white supremacist stuff, um, he's been feeding it into that here lately. So the last thing I saw him tweet was he was trying to equate what you saw in Charlottesville, Virginia, in those racist clan members, neo-Nazis, and trying to say that black nationalism comes from the same place. Uh, let me pull up the tweet and I'll read it uh, for you all. Because this guy just really, and it doesn't matter to him whether or not he can answer any of these questions. What matters to them is that they get a bunch of people riled up who won't take the opportunity to look up any of this information. And they looking for an excuse anyway to say, oh, look at the Black Panthers and, and, and Black Lives Matter. And that's the same thing as uh, two, how old is the Klan? 140 years old or something like that. Like, that's the same thing as a 140-year-old, 150-year-old terrorist organization made up of former Confederate soldiers who tried to overthrow the United States of America. Okay? That's what we're talking about. So it's not coming from the same place. This is what he said, along with a, a little promo for his book, The Big Lie, as he's on Twitter, telling big lies. White nationalism comes from the same place that black nationalism, fascism and Nazism come from and it isn't the GOP so I mean it's just so simplistic and it's just so, but that's what the type of people they targeting man, they keep it simple they keep it simple and sometimes you do have to keep it simple, it's how you get the masses to move, but when you're just telling blatant lies, and so I asked him, of course he's not going to reply, but I asked him, I said, thank you, but I'll get my history lessons from a natural-born American and not some convicted felon from Bombay, India. Now, am I, am I, is there even a word for it? <laughs> um, I am not one of those people who are considered anti-immigrant in his views. Do I think that do I uh, think that there should be some limits and some curves to some stuff? Yeah, if you're going to say borders exist or else just say borders don't exist and just let people free flow. But in the, me in the meantime, I know he is one of those 
who supports Trump's wall, who is anti-immigrant, but he himself is an immigrant. He was born in Bombay, India. He was brought over here as a child. He liked one of those dream children, I and mean, he became a natural life. He he wasn't he didn't come here illegally. His parents brought here him here legally, and then he went through the naturalization process and and got a college education. This is an Indian, a dude from India. Bombay. So I'm like, go back to Bombay, Dinesh, because I'm sick of him stirring the pot over here and pushing these lies and, and, and agitating these racists and terrorists to commit acts of terrorism. So I asked him, do you even know who the father of black nationalism is? He, the father of black nationalism was, the, was a U.S. Army Civil War veteran who said white people won't accept us, and he left the country. He established a, a colony over in one of the nations in Africa. This is a man who was born free, um, reportedly of African royalty, um, like his mom and them was kidnapped because of the different African empires that were fighting each other. She was sold into slavery, but was able to get her and her children's freedom saying, hey, I'm royalty, I'm African royalty and went to court and won her family's freedom. He That was his mother. He grew up to be a, one of the first uh, doctors to graduate from Harvard Medical School. Then um, when other doctors were fleeing areas that was hard hit by cholera, they would have cholera outbreaks and different diseases, this guy would go in. He would go in and treat these sick people, putting his own life at risk. And then when the abolitionists made the call to to join the U.S. Army to beat these Confederates and put an end to slavery, he joined. And he's credited with re helping to recruit tens of thousands of free and formerly enslaved black people. And so that man's name is Martin Delaney. That's the father of black nationalism. And I also linked to an article um, that I had written about it. Well, there's an article in the Post-Gazette, Martin Delaney, father of black nationalism. In 1846, the famous abolitionist Frederick Douglass uh, came to Pittsburgh. Let me just pull up this article and share a little bit about who this man is. Now, usually if you ask somebody black today who the father of black nationalism is, they're going to say Marcus Garvey. But no, he. this was before Garvey ever left. Uh, ever left Jamaica. This this is a, uh, Martin Delaney, father of black nationalism. Friend and rival of Frederick Douglass argued that African Americans should immigrate to Central or South America and later to Africa. In 1846, the infamous I'm sorry, the famous abolitionist Frederick Douglass came to Pittsburgh. His purpose he wanted to persuade a fellow African-American, Martin Delaney, to become co-editor of his new newspaper, The North Star. The editorial alliance of the two young men lasted only 18 months, but from the time of that meeting, Douglas and Delaney would remain lifelong friends and then often bitter rivals. Today, Frederick Douglass remains well-known to many Americans. Every year, school children are assigned to read his autobiography. And his face, framed by a shock of white hair, is a familiar visage. Except to history buffs, though, Martin Delaney has largely disappeared from view. Even most Pittsburghers who work downtown 
have undoubtedly walked right past the historical plaque dedicated to him next to PPG Plaza. Yet Delaney played an important role in the anti-slavery movement from before the Civil War and afterwards and is known as the father of black nationalism. Now that's what the Post had, had to say. Um, I had wrote about it because um, I think it was Yvette Carnell of Breaking Brown they had said that Clarence Thomas, uh, the Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, said that he was the quintessential. All right, let me. I found my place. That he was the quintessential black nationalist. So, see, people have different definitions of what black nationalism is, and over, I guess we could say the hundred and forty plus years since Martin Delaney launch what they now call black nationalism that many different movements and other people have followed and put their own stamp or their own worldview or however on black nationalism so it's not like 100% unity among people who may describe themselves as black nationalists some want uh, a homeland here in America as reparations for slavery like for uh, the southern north uh, Southeast states. Others want a reparations check and a passage to, I guess, Ghana or, or wherever. So, I mean, there's no, that's not, but look, Clarence Thomas does not represent black nationalism simply because he admired some things Malcolm X said. And Malcolm X, also a black nationalist, although he said, although he said he believed that we do need to leave here and go to Africa. He was like, but we got all these people here now. We need to eat now. Uh, we need to stop this bloodshed now. It, it, we need to work on this stuff now, where we are. And I work with anybody to who's trying to change this this condition. So, you know, the um, what I had wrote about Mr. Delaney from my research, um, I would say that I talk a little bit about Haiti. I say. Martin Robeson Delaney was born eight years after Haiti became a nation. He was born free to a mother who was African royalty but kidnapped and sold into slavery and brought into the United States. She would eventually get her freedom based on her noble blood, but she never returned to Africa. His father was an enslaved African, but Delaney was free like his mother. Delaney would grow up to become a slavery abolitionist, journalist, physician and writer and arguably the first proponent of black nationalism and among the first to call for black people to migrate to Africa because of his belief that the only way to achieve equality was to separate from the United States because the country would never stop practicing institutional racism. And in 1859, Delaney led an immigration commission to West Africa to explore possible sites for a new black nation along the Niger River. We are a nation within a nation. We must go from our oppressors, he wrote. So, that, Max, how is that coming from the same place as, let's say, the writer of the book, The Klansman, or D.W. Griffin with his friend, with his film, Birth of a Nation, where we just going to terrorize you based on your skin color and cause we a bunch of racist, filthy, white supremacists and we're barbaric and we get off on mutilating bodies and we're, we're just savages. 
I mean, that's, that's just basically call it what it is. Terrorism, yes. That's the political legal word for it. But we're talking about savages at, at, at the heart of the matter. We're talking about savages. Okay. How is this man, this African-American, this historic citizen of the United States of America who put on that uniform and put down the enemies of the United States in the form of the Confederacy. And then you're going to say he coming from the same place as these defeated Confederates and the hate and stuff that they have for black people. Because again, what another thing that's not really talked about is the Confederacy hate black people, especially today is because black people is the ones that put their ass down here in the South. It was black soldiers that came all it was black regiments raised right here in North Carolina and without us Lincoln would have lost the war remember he was a racist too and he kept black men and women from serving in the United States military but when they was seeing that they couldn't win it again without us they let us in and that's what really what the South mad about that these inferior people that you call inferior that were monkeys and animals and all kind of inhumane names that you threw at them they whooped your ass and you're still salty about that and we're dealing with a spirit ain't none of these people I'm talking about in this history lesson alive today they've been in the grave a long long time ago but this is this is stuff that's passed down generation to generation to generation. It's an evil spirit for those who are into spirituality or or types of religion that believe in in that sort of thing. But it, it's a spiritual thing as well, you know. And these are evil people. We're dealing with the ghost of the Confederacy, and I say that we need to organize and we need to put these rebels down, their ghosts down for good. These are terrorists and they need to be treated as such. But that's who the father of black nationalism is, Dinesh Suzu. if you care to know the truth. But we know you engaged in big lies as you sell your book, The Big Lie. I mean, the irony here, man. All right, Max, that's all I wanted to share. Well, that's a lie, brother. You touched on a lot of things and it was a hell of a lesson to learn. Uh, historical and present while also exposing frauds. Uh, not just any frauds, but uh, this particular one who's, uh, as you said, uh, born in, in uh, India and here telling us these things. We're dealing with this type of propaganda on so many levels right now. It happens all the time, Scotty. I, I just posted to New Abolitionists uh, an article that says it's basically the full list of Black Lives Matter being framed for something they, they did not do. And this is happening all the time. When when I first heard Trump talk about what occurred and he did not denounce anybody, I didn't even get through the whole speech because I knew where they were going from there. We've been talking about it for weeks. We saw the videos that was put out by the NRA. We talked about how, uh, what's his name, Alex Jones was talking about the same things, uh, the just pushing towards a race riot, a race war, and they'll do anything to to get that into a, you know, uh, into occurrence. Some of the examples uh, I wouldn't mind reading from this article uh, would be the first one. It says the incident in September. It was reported that Lieutenant Charles Joseph Glenowicz, 
was killed while chasing a trio of black suspects to Fox Lake, Illinois woods. Many believe the culprits were in support of the Black Lives Matter movement and acted out of revenge. Lenny Edwards was labeled a hero who died in the line of duty and thousands sent money to the family for support. Critics of BLM had new ammo questioning whether the movement's message was spiraling out of control. Now that was the narrative. What really happened after a massive manhunt for the suspects left investigators empty-handed, they finally revealed Glenowick staged a cleverly crafted suicide in fear of being exposed for embezzling from the youth group program. CNN reports Glenowick stole thousands from the Fox Lake Police Explorer program over seven years, spending it on mortgage, adult websites, loans, and much more. On Thursday, it was revealed that in addition to embezzling money, Glenowick sought out a hitman to kill a village, uh, to kill a village of Fox Lake employee whom he feared would expose him for his misdeeds. He also planned to plant cocaine on the employee to discredit her. That's how far they went. He killed himself and and tried to make it look like Black Lives Matter did it. And this wasn't just a guy, you know, from anywhere. This was a policeman. The results. An investigation has been launched into the embezzlement claims. The 100 Club of Chicago, which gave the family 15000 for funeral costs, has asked for their money back. That's just one example. Uh, another one where they had this uh, Black Lives Matter members, they said vandalized a Texas man's pickup truck just after the murder of uh, Houston Deputy Darren Goforth and Scott Latin's story was supported by police officers and others who donated $6,000 to a GoFundMe to get this guy a new car. Remember, he had Black Lives Matter written all over his car and spray painted on his truck and yeah, whatnot. And what really happened was during a follow-up report with the local news team, police noticed Latin shared details that weren't in the original report. After questioning him again about the vandalism, he confessed that he destroyed his own car to collect the insurance money. Now, you're going to get people killed so you could get a few thousand dollars. Expo- but see, man, just- these people like that, what Dinesh D'Souza says on Twitter, what he says on Fox News, what people like him say on these propaganda outlets and on social media, it, it, it's, it's, again, it's the butterfly effect. And you create you creating these uh, hostile uh, feelings in these people. You're priding them to go out and commit these sort of acts of racism and what have you. So, you know, again, man, people don't sleep on the power of the media and propaganda. It inspires people like these individuals. And I do remember several stories over the years like that, trying to frame Black Lives Matter. That's well, this I, is the list of all of them that they have up to date right here. Um, and uh, that was just two out of all of them. But there's so many. Just go through them. This, they're doing this for insurance money. Like Annie Dukin was doing it for $20 or $30 an extra head for every person that she framed for being uh, uh, addicted to drugs or having drugs in their system. $20, $30 a head. Like the probation officers that we have right now, these for-profit private probation offices, for instance, the ones that were in Alabama that were charged with racketeering and then had to leave 115 states, and they were doing it for $5 a head, five freaking dollars a head. 
they'll put you in prison for five dollars because they figure like you know what fifty thousand people in prison for five dollars is a lot of money we can work with that it's a terrible thing and then they criminalize us by associating us with crimes that we have nothing to do with nothing to do with there is no history of us bombing skyscrapers there's no history of us having these huge mass murders or running into theaters and shooting everybody in sight we don't run up in schools killing all the children you don't see that coming from us but we're being associated with those crimes to what they're calling hate crimes so a verbal attack could be considered a hate crime so if the black panthers say kill whitey that's a hate crime and now that it's a real crime air quotes you can say that they're equal to the guys who actually just ran in a church in my neighborhood, shot a senator, eight innocent parishioners while at the church after spending an hour with them on the anniversary of Denmark Vesey's failed revolution. Well, Max, okay, um, it's, it's funny because we talked about this earlier, but this is where we're going to have a point of disagreement because... First of all, some of these people are provocateurs. And then it is nothing but emotional candy meant to get black people into their emotions. And then after that emotional high, a week later, you hearing about the next murder and the next murder and the next murder. Look, there's a, I can't be, I can't have double standards. If I, if these white people was out here saying kill black people, kill Jews, kill Muslims, and they need to be prosecuted. Uh, for that. They're violating our human rights and our rights to exist. But at the same time, I, I can in no kind of way justify a black person saying something like that. And why would you say something like that? Why? Why would you bring attention to yourself in the heat and the weight of the system that you can't match their resources? Why would you draw attention to yourself like that? See, a lot of people talk about being codified, but they don't know what what the definition of code is it means saying thing is it's saying what you need to say but saying it in such a way that your enemy can't turn around and use it as a weapon against you it's it's called not being your own worst enemy some people want to say call it keeping it real look that's all for entertainment and all that kind of stuff but you know, I cannot. I, I mean, it's 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 hypocritical. It's hypocritical. So I, I I don't roll with people like that. You know, that's their right to say. Hey, I'm not even gonna say it's their right to say because if a, I don't think a, a white person or anybody else has the right to say that black people should be killed, so I can't be saying the same thing about other people. I'm not freaking in that mindset. That's a mindset we're trying to get that we're fighting against. May I get in on this? Sure. All right. We have heard governors talk about kill white, uh, kill black people, like kill all Muslim. We've heard mayors say it out loud. We heard uh, Dylan Roof repeat the very words spoken by Donald Trump and Ann Coulter right before he murdered them people. And that's not why he went to prison. Right now, I just put up the uh, news article regarding the uh, GOP congressman who was talking about Muslims and said, kill them all. This is an elected representative. 
The same thing applies to the Arizona representative who came out and, you know, compared uh, black liberation movements to the KKK as just the same thing. These are people who have control of others' lives. They can kill more people with a pen stroke than we can with a machine gun. And, And they're in charge of our laws, but nobody's prosecuting them. Nobody put Trump in jail for inciting violence, which he did, and we all know it. Well, maybe and he'll be one do. of those on trial, uh, you know, for uh, at the day after slavery ends. He'll be one of those on trial. But this is what I'm saying, Max, you know, and, and I know you under, understand this, but I'm just talking yes. to the people out there in general. I'm saying is, in terms of propaganda, let's just, I'm going to narrow it to what I do best. In terms of propaganda, in the media, I cannot say, I cannot be criticizing people for for being genocidal, making genocidal terroristic expressions at specific groups of people. So therefore, just cause a person look like me, I'm not going to say, hey, I agree with him or or anything like that. Or he has a right to say it. Or she has a right to say it. Because you don't have a right to say it. Okay, just because so-and-so is getting away with it. See, this reminds me of this clip of Fred Hampton where he was talking about Papa Doc in Haiti. And he was talking about the importance of education. And he was like saying that we don't hate the white people, we hate the oppressor. You know, that you've had black leaders of a revolution after the revolution turn into the oppressor of their own people. And so we're dealing with a mindset of spirit here. And so that's why, you know, hey, if they own that, I don't want to be associated with nothing like that. Because that's how you get a target put on you. That's how you know you ain't got no resources. And you know ain't nobody going to go out there and kill Whitey. So what was, what's the point? Some of these people are agent provocateurs. And they getting paid by the government to, to be these caricatures and what have you. So that they can then justify and say, hey, it's on coming from both sides. So I'm always on guard. I'm always on guard for propaganda and then think about, okay, like for for example, I said the other day about, I made a video about, are your words encouraging white people to practice racism or are you encouraging them to practice justice? And I have to say over the five years we've been on the air, I think we've encouraged a lot of white people to practice justice and becoming abolitionists. And, and working towards the goal of, in the slavery. So that's, I'm saying that sort of rhetoric, I cannot say people have a right to say it because I don't think anybody has a right uh, to say something that uh, would target me. I can't say I'm not in agreement because I'm in agreement with you. I don't think that the people should be saying that at all. But I get but, where you're coming from, Max, in that I think it was the Southern Poverty Law Center where they're putting these people on these lists and saying that they're the same as as the white supremacists and they're going off of rhetoric. If you it does they not they going off of what the words. See, that's the difference between the white supremacists and the caricature of black nationalists, how they trying to portray black nationalists. And those people who use those type of words again could be agent provocateurs who you they talk. They don't do they don't do it. These white terrorists terrorize. They do. They blow up buildings. They murder whole entire neighborhoods. They run over people 
unarmed people in crowds with their cars. So they have action. So that's a big difference there. You know what I'm saying? So I get what you're saying, but these people that's putting them on these lists is going off of their rhetoric. So I'm saying, you know, um, it, what's the per- we have to watch our rhetoric. Again, I'm coming from the perspective of propaganda and how the enemy can attack. You know they got way more resources than us. They got they own mass media. Black Talk Radio Network can't hold a candle to them. We just, you know, we reaching enough, though it don't take 100% unity. But we can't compare, so we can't compete on that level. So if they start putting resources behind, let's say, targeting your organization, tying you up in court, making you spend all this money that you don't have as a small organization. And then what? You're going to, you know, uh, think that people's going to raise 100000 200000 for your legal defenses. But you out of business then. So why you want to be bombastic and use that sort of language? I'm not, and I'm not interested in attracting that sort of attention. I think my language is bombastic enough in, in calling things um, as they are and not as as how they have been told to us and that slavery's never been abolished uh, a lot of these police officers ain't nothing but slave catchers uh, we got a bunch of human rights violators uh, uh, in in office right now in boardrooms of fortune 500 companies and I would like to see them on trial today at the slavery end so anybody that want to help us uh, get to that day then please, by all means, by any means necessary, however you fit into this new abolitionist movement. I'm going to read some of the stuff that came from Paul LePage that we reported on before. He's the governor of Maine. And LePage said controversial statements about race. In January, for instance, he claimed the state's drug problems were due to guys with the name D-Money, Smoothie, shifty, who travel to Maine, and half the time they impregnate a young white girl before they leave. Um, he also said things about bring the guillotine back to use on convicted drug traffickers. And Maine doesn't even have a death penalty. And then he uh, said he had further headlines when he cursed someone out in a voicemail he left on a Democratic state representative, Drew Gatine's phone who the governor claimed had level charges of racism against him. And he's going, I want you to prove I'm a racist, Paul LePage said, adding that he has spent his life helping black people and call it, called Gatine a vulgar name related to oral sex. I want you to record this and make it public because I'm after you, he says. This is coming from governor of Maine. And, and, and you know, we did the Maine is uh, Ferguson report, found out that there's just a real small amount of black people in Maine, but apparently they're all drug dealers named Shifty and uh, Slide Eyes or whatever the hell names he made who will impregnate white girls and then leave. How, how can you be a governor in office thinking like that? That in itself is criminal. You could hear him say it with his own words and it's freaking criminal. If you think like that, you should not be in charge of a damn ferret, let alone a whole state. And the, and it's not the only one. It, you know, Arkansas guy, he says, he's a white nationalist from Bob Ballinger, representative out in Arkansas, says, 
white nationalists, uh, hashtag BLM, hashtag KKK, hashtag Nazis, hashtags uh, Antifa, etc., all spew hate and violence, reject them and their hateful ideologies, divided we fall, which is one of the reasons why I put on our picture today, United We Stand, Divided We Fall. This is that division right here, but he they're, they're using the power of propaganda through the media to demonize and criminalize people who uh, their bark, it seems, are much worse than their bite up until now. Like, you know, <laughs> we have been saying and screaming these things forever. I mean... And I would be curious, just one more thing, Scotty, I would yeah. be curious, very curious, if these same people would walk up to those two women who were uh, captured and, and held hostage and had babies in this man's basement, I think it was in Baltimore, not quite sure, but you remember the it story? It was a place about in Ohio. That Ohio. Rescued? That was yes. Ohio. Yeah. In Ohio. Would you tell those women who had endured all of that torture at the hands of this man, don't hate him. You know, you did some bad things too. <laughs> would you associate, I mean, what would you do if they said, I hate him? Would you blame them after enduring all of that? Right. Oftentimes, the hate that you see coming from certain communities is fully so, justified. That's why, Max, I'm trying to say, you know, that we had to be careful. We had words matter. And we had to be careful, especially as non-white people in this system with all these resources and and different mechanisms pointed at us, man. We had to be careful with our words, but we should be mean what we say and be deliberate in what we saying. So if I ain't going out there to kill Whitey, ain't no sense of me coming on these airwaves saying it over and over. Yeah, we need to kill Whitey. You know, if you ain't willing to go out there and do what you talking about, then stop talking. Okay, stop talking. Instead, they do the alternative and talk about killing each other in songs and music and yeah. things like that. Yeah, but um, that propaganda machine. This is uh, COINTELPRO one hundred and one. You know, yes, I learned about it through. Uh, we will one day bring back that podcast. Maybe get some volunteers. Those interested in a political prisoner class. You know, the people who are in prison. Not that we mostly talk about that are enslaved that did not commit any crime against another individual, but violated, quote-unquote, black codes, that politicians, those are prisoners of politics. But abolitionists, like some who will be speaking Saturday, August the 19th, uh, uh, Albert King is one of them, right? Robert King. Robert, I said Albert, I'm thinking Albert Woodfox. Uh, Yeah, Robert Robert King. King. Uh, he's a he's a former political prisoner who's also an abolitionist, and he was targeted along with his comrades in Angola prison, part of the Angola Three, and other other people. You mentioned the Panther Twenty One. These are people who were targeted because of their abolitionism, even if they wasn't calling it abolitionism. They were fighting against a system that's still enslaving people. And all the old system plantations uh, controls is in place in this nation. Then you have some pockets of what we might call Freetown and and what have you. Uh, But for the most part, you don't produce the world's largest prison population without, you know, putting a bunch of laws on the books just to criminalize people behavior so that you can make money off of their bodies, provide so-called jobs. So, I heard them say in Charlottesville, Virginia, that they wanted to uh, 
find out who all of these white supremacists were there and supported this rally. And I was thinking to myself, what about the ones that live there, that have been living there? Like, you don't think they're there? Is that what you're talking about? You mean they all were imported? Nobody came from right there in town? And I started looking it up and found out that there was a history of racism where an entire neighborhood was wiped out of uh, that town at one time through gentrification. You know, and then there was another uh, young woman who I'll put the links up on New Abolitionist Radio who said, I grew up there. There's been racism there forever. So like here in South Carolina and Columbia, when they come down to, South, to Columbia, South Carolina, they used to come to welcoming arms, to friends, to places where they felt comfortable and had been there before uh, for whatever the reasons. So it's possible that's what happened in Virginia as well. And, you know, the connection of... Uh, Allowing these people to come in there and talk these types of genocidal things is it's just terrible on the person's yeah. psyche. I mean, for instance, there was a blogger from that Stormer. One of his first reactions after the Heather Hare was killed is saying, uh, he wrote this huge blog, blog, which ended up getting him kicked off of uh, GoDaddy, and then Google denied him too. But he said, uh, the woman killed in the road raid incident was a fat, childish, 32-year-old slut. And then they had another one where they were saying, I'm glad people got hit and someone died. You had the opportunity to speak to the world. I don't care what your problems is. You had the opportunity. You could have expressed it. And this is what you showed the world. That not what you want, but what you're about. There was no real request. Well, down with Jews will not be replaced by Jews, blood and soil, and, and all of these these things that were just insightful. So they didn't these really have a message man. other than we hate people. These are terrorists allowed to openly operate in the United States that should have been put down after the presidency of, of Ulysses S. Grant. When he used the Klan Act, that's why I've been hashtagging some stuff, bring back the Klan Act the Bring Back the Klan Act of 1871, where basically that was the Patriot Act of their day. And him being a former Union general, tight with the, you know, the troops that done won the war for him, black people, then won the war. And man, he was going after these people like the United States government today goes after ISIS and goes after so-called Al-Qaeda. So, you know, denying denying them habeas corpus rights, putting them on trial where a uh, federal trial where most of the jurors would be black. So, I mean, Ulysses S. Grant, man, I don't think he gets his proper due in history, but he he destroyed them. And then in 1915, what's that? Uh, uh, about 30 years, 45 years later, here come Woodrow Wilson screening the movie The Klansman or, or Birth of a Nation based on the book The Klansman and sent a message to those former Confederates and their children who they didn't brought up hating, you know, the North and hating black people and, and shaking their fist at, at Abraham Lincoln, um, you know, uh, allowed them to just, he signaled to them that it's open season on black people. And just terrorizing them, lynchings, shootings, maimings, mutilations, rapes, just against children, against women. No one was spared. And that's what we've been dealing with, you know. And that was going all the way on up into the 1960s where you had people like Robert F. Williams here, also North Carolina, uh, with the Black Guard, um, 
who organized, he was a Korean War veteran, organized a, a militia, a black militia to protect their community from the police and from the Klan. Um, you know, Black Panther Party, police violence. You know, KKK and police go together like peanut butter and jelly, man. You know what I'm saying? And, and it's always been so. And in 2006, the FBI put out a report talking about they have uh, these ghost skins, white supremacists without tattoos who have infiltrated the, the police department. So, you know, the Black Panther Party uh, rose up against that. And so then, you know, they went and busted a couple of these these so-called, uh, I mean, busted some of these terrorists, but then charged them with terrorism. Basically gave them slaps on the wrist and what have you. Very few convictions. And so, again, these people have been allowed to operate, terrorizing American citizens. And so I'm saying to, I didn't know this at the time, so don't think I'm judging you. But why would I say to my daughter or son or grandson later, hey, go go join the world and protect, I mean, join the United States Army or the Navy or the Air Force and protect your homeland protect the United States while you got a president openly endorsing the neo-confederate white supremacist terrorists engaged in acts of terrorism. So I'm saying, you know, what Frederick Douglass said, the, the, what did he say, Max, about the, the uh, limits of tyrants are set uh, by the endurance of those they oppress. And so we just keep playing football like nothing happened, playing basketball like nothing happening, uh, going to these jobs where we're killing people on behalf of USA Inc. And then they killing us in the street. We can't get no justice. That I, I just don't see how that can work or how that's saying. Um, I'm kind of trying to bring it all together, I guess, for my conclusion of it is the uh, show that this is institutional institutional racism. It's being done in the open. You got people talking about kill all Muslims. You got cops. Yeah, these just, with the most, just most recently, uh, a policeman put on social media right after Heather Hayes was killed uh, saying horror car plows into protesters in Charlottesville, one dead, 19 in, injured. And this Conrad Larivere, which is a policeman, said, ha ha ha, mm-hmm. I love this. Maybe people shouldn't block roadways. And they said, how do you know he was a Nazi scumbag? Stop being part of the problem. Are you serious? Someone said a person died. 19 people are injured some badly. You love this? And the cop asked her, how many times has a car plowed into you? You're an idiot. And he says, actually, I've been hit by an ash, ash bag with warrants, but who cares, right? You ignorant rats live in fantasy land with the rest of America while I deal with the real danger. So he thinks he's a superhero, but at the same time, he's happy that someone was killed. He's a For terrorist. Me, that indicates that this man has a sociopathic mentality and should be examined immediately. Listen, people need to start preparing for the next civil war because the first civil war, let's just call it the Koreas. You know, the Korean War never did end. There was just a truce called. And that's basically how I look at it because, you know, the all the people who fought in the Union Army to put down this this threat, this domestic threat to the United States, they were fighting to end slavery too. 
You know what I'm saying? Many of them, that was their primary goal. And some of them had actually been enslaved when they joined. And, and once they were liberated, they joined. And so, I mean, oh, man. Lincoln yeah. betrayed them. He allowed them to have that exception clause of the 13th Amendment. That's the one of the major things we want to point out Saturday. It's that 13th Amendment. I call it the Confederate Compromise. And Malcolm X said, did the South, you know, the South told you they lost the war. You know, did the South really lose? And he was talking about how the Dixiecrats, racist Democrats during his time, controlled all these different powerful committees in Congress and how they were the ones keeping Jim Crow in place and, and, and what have you. And he was like, you know, they control all of this, and but they telling you the South lost the war. Well, look, here you got a son of an immigrant. Donald Trump ain't even, what is Donald Trump? Second generation American? I don't know. They ain't even got no rich American history. But now here we got this dude taken up for the neo-confederacy. These are enemies of the United States. He's in violation of his oath of office by endorsing enemies, making U.S. citizens, all of these people who are public officials defending these monuments to enemies of the United States, according to the 14th Amendment, they could be recalled. But see, we don't know these things because we don't read, we don't study law, we don't try different legal strategies, and we just sit back and we take it and, 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 you know, so again, a little girl in Charlottesville flapped her wings when she started a petition that said that I don't think as a child in a, in a, a citizen of Charlottesville that I should have to be uh, in the park with a monument to this racist slaver, this enemy of the United States in a public park. A little girl started that. A little girl started that. So, these people, going back to what you were saying earlier about them coming from out of town, Richard Spencer and them did start this. The locals did not start that. I'm sure there are some local clan members around there, but most of the, the people news, that that was all Richard Spencer. They the was, news report says a local blogger organized it. He might have got the petition. You know what I'm saying? And they and Richard Spencer might have gave him the money to pay for the petition or whatnot. But again, think about this. Think about this. We have a Virginia state official given a permit to go out there and, and, and terrorize people and make threats to people, to American citizens, to represent a freaking enemy of the United States that was supposedly defeated in 1865. So like Malcolm X said, did the South really lose the war? So I'm telling you, abolitionists, regardless of your skin color, you need to get prepared, you need to get organized, because who knows what can pop off six months from now, a year from now, with this dude emboldening these terrorists and clearly the federal government signaling that it supports terrorism against its citizens. And, and to quote uh, our great ancestor Robert F. Williams, if the federal government will not enforce federal law and if it's going to be the law of the jungle in Dixie, then uh, what did he advise people to do? 
He said to kill if necessary, to defend yourself, to defend your community, do whatever is necessary if the U.S. government is not going to protect you. That's from a U.S. veteran who said that. And that's the reality that we're faced with today. So, you know, I just want to reiterate that. We have to be organizing, not just on the front of agitating and, and working through the legal means, but we see these are armed militias out there that mean to do us harm. They killed this woman, uh, what's her name again? And I have to commit it to memory because I'm going to count her as a casualty. Heather Hayes. Heather Hayes. She's a casualty of the unfinished Civil War. Hayer, actually, H-E-Y-E-R. Hayer. Heather Hayer, okay. She's a casualty of this war. So I'm telling you, man, people take this serious because it is serious. It's slavery. It's the real thing. This uh, institutional racism where these people are involved in every aspect of our life are causing some terrible tragedies to occur. And it's even worse because they're so normalized that you can stand next to them and not do anything about what they're doing to somebody knowing it's a crime against humanity. An example of that would be the video I just put up about the execution of uh, Jamarion, uh, where he was shot at you know, 76 times in Atlanta. And there's a video of his mother walking through the house where they came in and she's showing all the bullet wounds and he's telling you where his son was. You see the blood on the carpet where they killed him in one or they killed him at the top of the stairs, then dragged him down the stairs and left him to bleed out on the floor in the living room and all the bullets are shooting upwards. They claim he shot at them, but they fired seventy six shots and it was all the way up throughout the house. Uh, many of them in every part of his body. I mean what kind of world do we live in where not only can you do this, but the people who know you're wrong are gonna stand there and say nothing. You and I reported on stories that are so terrible. For instance, in Ohio, where police shot 144 rounds at a couple who were unarmed in a car that was not moving. And one of the policemen jumped up on the car and fired point blank, reloading his gun at least twice into the windshield of this couple that was no more than two feet away from him, two or three feet away from his gun. And then they went to court just I believe it was last year and it ended up where the judge said that the man that they were charging who was on the hood of the car could not be convicted of murder because there was no way to know which one of the bullets from which officer of the 144 actually killed the victims you know there were no words to say anything about that so you see this video and you see this blood on the ground and you know that this is what we're dealing with because of slavery and institutional racism. Many of these people have never gotten out of the attitude that they are superior beings and that we are lesser beings and that they are some kind of savior for us and by their own mercy do they keep us alive and around. That, and what kind of thought process is that? You know, Frederick Douglass saw this. Man, to be real and with I, you, there's some black people that think like that too, but I'm sorry to inter- interject. Yeah. Frederick Douglass saw this, and he wrote his greatest speech, I believe, ever, which was called, I denounced the so-called emancipation as a stupendous fraud. And in 1888, on the anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation in D.C., District of Columbia, he read this speech. 
And I've read the speech four or five times. I'm trying to tell you that it tells you exactly what's happening right now. And I'm going to read you one quote on it where he said, there are very good reasons why these people would not have slavery back if they could. Reasons far more creditable to their cunning than to their conscience. With slavery, they had some care and responsibility for the physical well-being of their slaves. Now, they have as firm a grip on the freedman's labor as when he was a slave. And without any burden of caring for his children or himself, the whole arrangement is stamped with fraud and is supported by hypocrisy. And I hear and now, on this Emancipation Day, denounce it as a villainous swindle and invoke the press, the pulpit, and the lawmaker to ex assist in exposing it out and blotting it out forever. This was from Frederick Douglass, the man who was there the whole time, along with Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth and all these other abolitionists, said this whole thing was a fraud. It's worse than when we were in slavery, because now you don't got to care about us. One dies, get another. You can send him in jail for 40000 a year. If he gets out of line, just make a big-ass painting on the wall of his body using chemical sprays that kill him. If they get out of line put them in a, a shower and boil their skin off until they die. If they get out of line, get another one. It's terrible. I mean, then we look at this like we have any value at all. Once you're behind those bars, your value seems to cease, and they can feed you maggots in the food. They can feed you rat poison in the food. They can allow the country to be the leader in male-on-male -male rape, the brutality and assault. And, you know, my son was telling me about how they're doing it now where he was at. They stick everybody together in some places. You could be in there for tax evasion or not paying a parking ticket, sitting in the same cell next to a guy who got six bodies on him. Like right there. Okay. My, my little bit of a rant is over. Everything that I've been talking about is on New Abolitionist Radio on our Facebook page, so you can look it up for yourself. Like we always say, this is not something we're making up. These are the facts of the matter, and we're just trying to help bring it into clarity so you can understand what the problem is, how bad the problem is, because that seems to be something that's very much overlooked, and how we can solve this problem. So, Max, I don't know if you could see the board, but I had sent you a chat message. But I really do need to get some some treatment on this, man. And um, if we can do our final segments or close out early, or if you can do the rest of the program without me, but I need some treatment. So I'll be good for Saturday. Okay, well, uh, do we have any callers on the line uh, that'd be interested in um, participating in tonight's program? Um, nobody's unmuted. Can you see the board? Okay. Uh, I can now. I can now. I've been trying to keep up with the stories. Remember I was telling you earlier, I think I need somebody to help us out with this now. You know, like when we're talking about these stories to snatch them off of the uh, planning board and share my new abolition. I mean, we got uh, Brother Otis. Brother Otis, chime in with uh, Brother Max um, about what's going on up there in Virginia. You, you sure you want me in here on it? <laughs> What's happening, Otis? I, man, I got, I got a lot of questions, man. I know y'all y'all usually uh, concentrate on more of the abolition, but I'm telling you, I've been digging behind the scenes on this Charlottesville thing, and I'm not a fan of my, my state governor, Terry McCullough. Oh. And uh, when this thing kicked off, Wes Bellamy was a black city councilman couple years ago, I think 2015 when this first got off the 
going along. This black guy, they, they vilified him because of his record when he was young, a youngster. Tried to say he was a hate monger, the whole bit. Part of what, what Scotty talks about, codify your speech. By the time he made it to city council, he had to backtrack and apologize for some of the things he said about kill white folks and the whole bit. This, I mean, this is a perfect example of what Scotty talks about. Now here it comes 2017. He's finally, because of what that little girl complained about, he got together, he got the city council to take down the statue. But he didn't just say what, what they've been saying all across the nation, get rid of them, destroy them. They actually came up with a plan to sell this or auction it off to either a private bidder or whoever, you know, any, any entity that wants to buy it. And they said, put it in a museum, put it on private property. In other words, deal with it the way it should be. It shouldn't be sitting in a public square as no omen to great things from a, a side of the of the country, ab, uh, what do you call it, a slave secessionist that, that wanted to succeed from the country. So let's put them in a museum where relics go. I see black people all over social media saying, oh no, it's getting rid of our history. Even Condoleezza Rice said the same thing. Why, why uh, sanitize our history? There's not another nation on the face of this earth that puts the losers' monuments up. So that back to what you were saying historically. Put the losers about, monument up. Hey, come on now. I mean, look right back to what you just read. Mm-hmm. They're telling you that the South lost, but you and I both know that Thirteenth Amendment with the exception clause. I tell people, I read it in high school and got irate. And, I, and I'm 64, and I'm telling you, I'm so happy now that it's coming to light because I've been walking around for basically since, what, 1959, uh, 60? I was born in 1953, and I'm telling you, I wasn't more than third or fourth grade when I figured out that it was a lie. So I'm feeling like a champion that people are actually waking up saying we've been hoodwinked. What I don't get is educated black people that say it makes no difference. That, that blows my mind. How can yeah. you be educated and say it make statues don't make any difference? The thirteenth doesn't make any difference. All you need to do is do right and you never go to jail. Trust us. <laughs> Have we ever done you wrong yet? <laughs> it's insane, you know, man. And that's what I was saying earlier. Uh you know, the hate can be justified. You got people who have been in poverty for generations, who have been oppressed for generations. They call these places million-dollar blocks, where all they do is uh, generate revenue from these areas of high poverty because they have so many arrests. Any interaction they've had throughout their life with the uh, quote-unquote white population has always been bad. And now you want them to just trust you. And you, you you look at them and say, well, you shouldn't hate us. It wasn't me. We're supposed to be the generation trying to make a difference. We're supposed to not just tell them you can trust us, but show them you can trust us. And I've seen that with the courage of a lot of the fair-skinned brothers and sisters or comrades out there in Virginia and elsewhere. I've been seeing that a lot. They're putting their money where their mouth is, their body where their mouth is, their lives on the line, and not expecting anybody to come up and hug them like they Tarzan. Just do it because it needs to be done. Exactly. You know, do it because it needs to be done. And and one of the things that I see is there's other organizations that need to be having. They need a personal connection to it in order for them to uh, be moved into action. I run across that with our comrades 
in the labor movement. And, you know, Scotty talks about codification, so I'm expected to explain to them how they're losing jobs because of slavery. <laughs> and, I, and it hurts coming out my mouth because I want to say you should be helping because of slavery. It don't matter whether you're losing a job or not. Every living soul in this country should be up in arms about the fact that you can buy and sell a human being, that they're being hunted in the streets and put into cages for profit, that entire cities and counties and sometimes states only exist by the revenue generated through those prisons, jails, probation companies, and on and on and on. That's a terrible thing. And if you need an extra reason besides that, the problem is with you. But see, that you're back to the morality part. I'm telling you, I, I brought up a conversation one time in the midst of some people I didn't know they happened to be females. And I didn't realize, at a happy hour at a predominantly black place, and I brought up that issue of you can go online and get a little degree and become a super cop in a private prison. And ended up all three of them were actually employed at the prison. And they got upset with me talking about that's what put milk in their baby's mouth and all that. And I'm saying, but don't you understand it's enslavement? It's like working on the plantation at an annex or something. I mean, and I, I, I stayed there at the place talking to them. One of them still talks to me now on social media, but they were really upset with me because I kept telling them, I said, you've been hoodwinked into working on the plantation. And especially when you find out that 95% of the people that are there are there on plea bargains. They didn't even get a fair chance to plead their case in a court of law. <laughs> And again, that is a big problem, something that we keep talking about. You're talking, you know, this is the law of the land. The Constitution is the, the supreme law of the land. People swear oaths to defend it unto death, and they don't even know what it says. They don't know the, that they're, by, well, maybe they do, <laughs> but the general person, the average person doesn't know when their rights are being violated uh, because they don't know what their rights are. Like, yeah. Yeah, the, yeah. What, I, right. I, I, I've learned a lot listening to this station, and I will tell you, uh, even when you brought up the issue about uh, in in uh, Charlottesville, 1965, they took down a black neighborhood called Vinegar Hill. Now I'm here in Yorktown, Virginia. I saw it right here where I live, and and when I went back to do the research, I'm telling you, these people are just like franchise uh, burger places. When when the Interstate Highway Bill got signed in 1953. I mean, 56. I was three years old. But by the time I started going around with my uncle, who was in the military, and he'd come in town, he was out in Kentucky, and then he ended up going overseas for a long time. He was a smart man, and he would bring up issues with me, and I'd go to the library and start looking up. One of the ways they got rid of black communities was with the interstate highway construction. Some 41 to 46,000 miles of construction from one end of the nation to the others, Atlantic to the Pacific, and that's what they use, the power of federal government along with local government and white established uh, provocateurs and landowners, and they tore down black neighborhoods with the power of the U.S. government. That's one of the things that happened in Charlottesville and Vinegar Hill. But it's, uh, and what usually happens? Right next to what? Downtown going into white institutions like the University of Virginia 
and that's what that's where all of this stuff is occurring right now. Land that was stolen in 1965 under the, under the power of eminent domain. Right. This is a it's, it's such a big machine that's going on. Exactly. And all these gears are rolling, but all these gears are connected to a constant that's been there since 1777. It was reapplied several times between 1777 and 1865 and then adopted in 1865 as a compromise with the southern slave owners. And that thing that has remained constant throughout all this time and been exploited is the 13th Amendment Exception Clause, which allows prisoners duly convicted to be considered slaves, property, to be bought and sold to be worked, to be owned, to be used, and all of that applies. And then with the introduction of for-profit private prisons and the individual being able to invest in these now for-profit private prisons, it once again opened up the door for chattel slavery. Because now it's not just the state that owns you, it's the stockholder that owns you too. And it, there's no limits to it because well, it's, anybody it's, can own it. It's, 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 it's almost like the same scam that Amway and the rest of these Ponzi schemes use. If you stop and think about it, Max, there is no extra process in prison other than who I let on the building. But the truth is, with these private prisons, they're not using private money to build them. They actually get public funds to build them, or they build them and lease them back to the public so it all gets paid for so what happens is they really created a middleman to run like the stock market it's almost like having what do you call this thing futures and, and uh, speculative, speculative bidding which is the same thing they did from what I understand now listening to a couple <laughs> other programs I find out that's exactly what how slavery was basically exported to Europe that uh, the slave owners actually were breeding slaves and had futures contracts where they borrowed money in London and stuff on the, on the next crop of slaves that would be born nine months later. Yes, so that's, that's basically true. how the stock market became. Yeah, that's became. true, Otis. Uh, Wall Street, original slave market. And, exactly. But <laughs> but the private prisons, though, this is how they operate, what we co- uncovered from studying them for five years, spying on their you know uh, earnings calls and, and what have you. But no, they're for they're um, incorporated as real estate companies. Now, yeah. when you start talking about chattel slavery, chattel means property. Also, when you yes. get down to the root word of the Latin, I believe it means property, counting heads, and what yes. have you. And so, so they form as real estate companies, and they do buy or they lease the facilities. They don't really build them. They're a real estate company. And then they also take advantage of real estate tax loopholes. They're not even paying taxes. Now the individual, I agree. Yeah, they're not even now, paying taxes. So that's how their business model is. What, what I'm saying is they actually become a holding company. In other words, instead of, instead of you just paying taxpayers money to hold somebody in a facility, you're actually paying them to do what's supposed to be government services and they're using that money, the cash they actually use to pay out to each other, they make their money off of their, the property. I mean, you know, their, their, their investment. So they're using that money to give themselves uh, bonuses at the end of the year. That's actually cash money 
and then drive the stock prices up and, and what add another ten thousand uh, shares to this. So they're really milking the system like a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> hey guys, I, I want I got like a forty second clip I want to try to play. I don't know if it'll work, but let me know if you hear this. Can you hear that? Did you hear that? It's, no. it's real loud. Right, I'm gonna have to put it on New Abolitionist Radio so Scotty can get a hold of it, and uh, then I can introduce it. There's a concern that I have, uh, and that is with the idea that there's this money laundering scheme going on that allows gov- uh, government officials, uh, private industry, private individuals to purchase these stocks in these for-profit prisons and then bundle it together with other investments so they have no, they have this plausible deniability. You know, right now, our Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, actually owns month, uh, stock in for-profit private prisons. And he's not making millions of dollars on it, maybe twenty or $30,000, but he owns stock in these private prisons. And how does he own them? Through uh, investment firms like the Vanguard Group, which is... Uh, just you know, invest their clients' money into these various portfolios. So they're laundering the money through that, and you know it's fully within their power to take advantage of that. They don't have to downplay it. They could actually take advantage of it. They could say, you know what, put some more money. He put ten million, put eighty million into these prisons, and as Attorney General, still be making money off it. Uh, it's a terrible thing. And there's a clip that came out from a video. Uh, series uh, documentary that I want you to hear and it's called uh, Immigrants for Sale and this particular clip that's only 40 seconds long you're going to hear is an auction for a prison that is being auctioned out to private industry and you'll hear the auctioneer describe why they should buy this prison Scotty are you able to find that on New Abolitionist Radio? I'm pulling it up now Mace as we right speak, the top I, and I, I remember that it was like at a high school gym. Well, make it so bad, wasn't it? Inside a high school gym, local college gym. Got it. We might have lost me. No, I'm here, man. Can you hear me, Otis? Yes, yes, I'm with you. I'm here, okay. man. Uh, I'm sorry. Can you hear this video right now? No, I'm pulling it up for you, no. Max. Oh, okay. Oh, he's yeah, he's pulling it up. Uh, she's you going- need to hear this with your own ears. Uh, we played it before uh, when it first came out. But here we are a few days before the Millions for Prisoners Human Rights March on Washington. And we're calling it slavery. And we want you to know why we're calling it slavery. So you can hear it in their own words right here from Bill Clayton Detention Center of Littlefield. This is on your new abolitionist page. It's on So we got to reverse that, okay, and make sure that we got him at max audio because y'all need to hear that again. Cause so when people are saying the prison pipeline, school to prison pipeline, that's not. I'm I'm big on not using metaphors and trying to use the most accurate words as possible to describe it. But there is a literal pipeline, and here here you have it from this guy. So let's back that up. Pay attention to what he's saying. What I'm going to sell today really is 
state of the art. It's as good as it can possibly get. You have the people coming into that pipeline, so you have an endless supply of product. No matter what your business is, what you're looking for, we will have a steady supply of people in America to fill this facility. Steady supply of people. Whatever your product you're making is, whatever your service is, you're going to have a steady supply of people coming into this facility through this pipeline. And what's the what what erected that pipeline? What created that pipeline? Slavery. In my opinion, I mean, Thirteenth Amendment made it legal to do this. Yeah. 13th Amendment, man. So, you know, people say like, um, oh, changing the 13th Amendment is only going to result in just maybe a few people getting out, but they ain't going to live on the edges of society. So I'm like, if it free one person, ain't hey, wouldn't you do it? If it was just, if it resulted in one person getting free, but you acknowledge more than one person would, would get free. But you don't understand the legal tentacles to that Thirteenth Amendment. You, we, if we had time and a whole bunch of money to pay researchers, I'm sure, man, we could come up with federal law that is in con that would be in conflict with the Thirteenth Amendment if we eliminated that exception clause. Do you guys understand what I'm trying to say? Yes. It created I've heard the this pipeline from the prison industries, where they say that it is necessary in order to uh, to have the the indentured servitude part is necessary for forced labor as part of their prison sentence. You know, where these guys have an opportunity to work and to train for jobs and blah blah blah. But that argument doesn't hold any damn water at all. None, no water at all, man. All right, well, we're coming up on twenty minute mark. Uh, or the 40 minute mark into it 36, 936 I believe right now although I think your watch is or your time is a little bit faster than mine Scotty so almost 940 we need to get into those final segments but I would like to just spend a minute or two finally uh, finalizing whatever we want to say about the Millions of Prisoners Human Rights March coming up Saturday because you won't hear again from us again until then and if we're lucky Johanna and Elia will also be back to help uh, host on the spot the live stream from Black Talk Radio Network in Washington, D.C. Make sure you share all the feeds because there's going to be at least 16 cities that are marching and rallying in solidarity. So this is an impactful event that has never been seen before and won't be seen again. There'll never be a first time like this again. So make sure you share the events and live streams. Scotty? change your profile pics too I'm changing all, all the uh, properties that Black Talk Media Project controls on social media, the Twitter feeds to the, 13, the amended 13th Amendment, we're going to get a whole bunch of white people to, to uh, get some white out and white out that, that uh, 13th Amendment slavery exception clause involuntary servitude and slavery exception clause where it's just going to say that it's abolished no slavery, no involuntary servitude. Without that, there's no human trafficking, and and we'll take take it from there. 
So, but I, I, I'm changing all the pages that I, that Black Talk Media Project controls with the amended Thirteenth Amendment. Took some white out to it, and um, not that I'm promoting big or anything. And I also got the information about the the rally, the date, the time, the location, all that good information. And if you are attending a local rally in your area, put your local information. Now's the time to start promoting this. Those are the little things that can turn into big things, the little things. So, you know, but like I was saying earlier, though, man, man, we had to start pulling out some bricks at some point. And, you know, people keep waiting on the system collapsing in on itself as they say, wait for it to go broke or to overextend itself or something. Well, I'm trying to help it on its way, okay? And uh, and ending slavery, one of the financial linchpins and cornerstones of this this country, uh, that needs to go. And let's form a more better union, not to sound cliche or or something, but let's... let's, let's, uh, um, create the nation that Ulysses S. Grant and and veterans of the Civil War envision, and not all this terrorism and legalized slavery and human trafficking. Fulfill the promises of America. Indeed. Uh, be there. If you're not able to get to D.C., get to one of the local uh, areas in your city, maybe a state away if you have to go to, but get there. Show that you care. And this here, uh, opportunity in time, we can change everything. I mean, it's the core issue. It's the key <laughs> that unlocks it. And the alternative sucks. The alternative sucks, and you know it sucks. You gotta ask yourself a question, man. Uh, you've seen the evidence. You've heard all the stories. You know for yourself. Is it slavery or isn't it? And if it's slavery, is reform the answer to slavery? No. Abolition. So when you start asking those questions and you say, well, abolition is the answer to slavery, but wasn't it abolished already? You gotta look. <laughs> Was it abolished already? No. The 13th Amendment had an exception clause. It was exploited beginning in 1865 as part of a compromise, reconstruction, in order to provide this free labor that was necessary to build America. And that never ended because they kept doing it. They just streamlined it. They, the technology changes things. If you are looking for a physical plantation with people picking cotton and there for 30, 40, 50 years, you don't have to go no further than Angola, Louisiana, where one of these speakers, uh, Robert King, will be in Washington to tell his piece. Um, And you can see it there. But normally that's not how it looks. It's just a processing situation. Like in Chicago, where they have this underground tunnel that goes uh, to the from the court to the jail and all day long there's this line of bodies just in handcuffs and chains walking through it that's the assembly line right there hey i've been in slavery you don't reform that you got to abolish that we're not trying to close all prisons at least that's not my goal like scotty said there's four goals that we have here from new abolitionist radio and we've had it from day one and that is end slavery free the enslaved discuss uh, or negotiate reparations and reconciliation and reconstruction and then support black autonomy so we have the opportunity for the first time in history in this country to determine our own futures if we choose I mean how difficult is that and this is our opportunity in time to make that happen that's August 19th in DC and all over America millions for prisoners human rights march God bless the free Alabama movement uh, and the jailhouse lawyers speak and the I Am We prison advocacy network who have uh, helped to initiate 
this to bring this point of reality, this tipping point to the forefront of American society. And I don't know if you notice, but I have. Everybody's talking about slavery. Right now, everybody's talking about slavery. It's only a matter of time before they start talking about whether it's still happening or not. And that's all I got to say about that. All right, Scotty. Um, you want me to go ahead and start with the first of our final segments? And uh, you, got, you can get the next one? Uh, yes, what's the next segment? All right. The uh, first one I'm going to be doing is our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad. And then we have uh, our abolitionist in profile after that. They're both on New Abolitionist Radio's gotcha. Facebook page. And I'll start with this one. Our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad this week is Ryan Matthews. Ryan Matthews spent five years on Louisiana's death row for a crime he did not commit. 17 years old at the time he was arrested. Matthews was sentenced to death for the shooting of Tommy Van Hoos, the convenience store owner in Bridge City, Louisiana. <coughs> DNA testing resulted both results both exonerated Matthews and revealed the identity of the actual perpetrator. In April 1997, a man wearing a ski mask entered Van Hoos' store and demanded money. When Van Hoos refused, the perpetrator shot him four times and fled, taking off his mask and driving into the passenger side window of an awaiting car, or diving into. Several witnesses viewed the perpetrator's flight. One witness was in her car and watched the perpetrator run from the store, fire shot, fire shots in her direction, and leap into a car. When she was later showed a photographic array, she tentatively identified Matthew as the assailant. By the time of the trial, she was sure that Matthew was the gunman. Two other witnesses in the same car watched as the perpetrator shed his mask, gloves, and shirt and fled. The driver claimed to have seen the perpetrator's face in his rearview mirror while he was being shot at and trying to block the escape. This witness and his passenger were brought to a show-up hours later. The driver identified Matthews. His passenger was unable to make an identification. Ryan Matthews and Travis Hayes, both 17 at the time, were stopped several hours after the crime because the car they were riding in resembled the description of the getaway car. They were arrested, and Hayes was then questioned for over six hours. In his initial statements to investigators, Hayes claimed that he and Matthews were not in the area when the crime occurred. Hayes eventually confessed that he was the driver of the getaway car. He stated that Matthew went into the store, shots went off, and Matthew ran out and got into the car. Both boys were described as borderline mentally retarded. In 1999, based mainly on the identification, Matthew was convicted of murder and was sentenced to die. Hayes was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to life. Matthews had maintained his innocence since arrest. The defense presented evidence that for sonic testing of the mass excluded both Matthews and Hayes. A defense expert also testified that the car that the two boys were driving, the reason they were stopped, could not have been the getaway car because the passenger side window that Matthews allegedly jumped through was inoperable and could not be rolled down. Other witnesses to the crime described the shooter as being much shorter than Matthews. Continued defense investigation by William Sultan and the Clive Stafford Smith of the Louisiana Crisis Assistance Center and DNA testing in another murder case proved to be the keys to providing Matthews innocence. Another murder occurred shortly after Van Hoos's death in the same area. A local resident, Rondell Love, was arrested and pled guilty. Love bragged to other inmates that he also killed Van Hoos, prompting Matthews' attorneys to begin investigating Love. The DNA test result from the second uh, 
murder were compared to the results from the Matthews conviction, indicating that Love had been wearing the mask that was left behind in the Matthews murder. Matthews became the 14th death row inmate in the United States proven innocent by post-conviction DNA testing. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio say welcome to freedom, Brother Matthews. Wow. That's a rider of the 21st century underground railroad. Uh, next, we have our abolitionist in profile. Yeah, before before we do, though, Max, you know, I just want to welcome him to freedom. But we, it's important that we keep highlighting these stories because they represent people getting free from slavery and all the people and the groups behind that. They put their financial energy to that. They put their intellectual energy to that. I, I call you abolitionists. See, you're doing abolitionist work even if you don't recognize what you're battling is slavery. So, you know, just how do you compensate? That, that person is owed reparations. And many times in these cases, they're not even getting reparations. So, you know, I so support the movement for reparations, which, you know, we do have some who have declared themselves abolitionists, but we're looking at a lot of victims, you know, that deserve reparations for this modern day slavery and human trafficking. Uh, I mean, it's it's terrible. But thank you to those people that put their talents to freeing people. And if the 13th Amendment, removing that exception clause will, if it only lead to a thousand people getting out, that's a victory. And we just keep plugging away and removing bricks until the the foundation, I mean, the building collapses. I think it'll lead to quite a bit more than that. They'll grudgingly let us go, Scotty. They're going to let some of us go. They ain't going to have much choice. Quite a few of us, I suspect. But I don't foresee them trying to help us once we're out. They'll be like, they'll hate, they'll hate us. They'll I don't lose care jobs about if they hate careers us, and all of that. They'll hate us afterwards. I we'll don't care about them. that. I don't care about another man's emotions or a woman's emotions. They in their emotions. I don't let care. People free. Um, yeah, I, I don't concern myself with the emotions of of slavers. And racist and terrorists. I don't. Con- I'm not. It's I don't. The emotion reckon- that concerns me. Yeah. When you have a large group of people who are well armed and they hate you, it usually ends up with community. Well, it's destroyed. a whole lot. It's a whole lot. It's more of us than it is of them. And yeah, we maybe we need to be arming up and organizing and training, like I talked about earlier, and preparing for Civil War Two. Oh you- man, I ain't trying to. If I can avoid anything like that, I would. That's why well, I fight so hard. You know, you pre- it, I ain't trying to see them you don't dying prepare, in the street. You don't That's prepare crazy. because you want something to happen. You prepare because it can happen. And yeah. it can happen. Like, you know, people not concerned about slavery today and don't see the connection. Y'all talk about FEMA camps. and, and If you ain't resisting this right here, prison slavery... If you ain't forming no kind of resistance to that, in whatever way, trying to get people free, then then you're not prepared and organized for when the FEMA caps get opened up. Like we hear people like Alex Jones have said for so many years, and they start putting them in to the FEMA camps like the Nazis was putting people in concentration camps. 
and what have you. So you're not even organized for that. So that's what I mean when I, I, I don't say get prepared because I'm scared. I don't say I get prepared because I want this to happen. I'm just saying based off of the things that the tea leaves, it, you know, based off of reading the tea leaves, it's best to be prepared and organized and trained just like our ancestors did. I ain't telling you to do nothing that hasn't already been done, you know. That, uh, all the communities weren't burnt down and the people weren't ran off. The ones that prepared with firearms like the Black Guard and, and, and Mr. Williams, um, they were able to hold on to their land. They ran him off, but the communities remain. There's so many old stories not told, but that's all I'm saying, Max. We had to be prepared, man. And, and you, you know, when I met you, you describe yourself to me as an anarchist, and sometimes you need anarchy, what? especially when you're mm-hmm. dealing with a system practicing slavery. And and shout out and salute to the anarchists that was battling them terrorists in the streets in Charlottesville. I know it ain't get a lot of attention, but I salute the anarchist community. Please align yourself with abolitionists. When when I described myself when we first got together, Scotty, as an anarchist, I think I went into detail on how I meant. To- from the bi- biblical version where you worry not about the hairs on your head because his eyes is on the sparrow and he watches over you. You know what I mean? God is really in control. That's how I look at it. Like all of this chaos that's occurring around us has a purpose. I got to have faith in that. Otherwise, control chaos has a purpose too. Shout out to the anarchists. But let's get to... Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> let's get to Garnet. Uh, Henry Highland Garnet. 1815-1882 he is our abolitionist in profile tonight although we have mentioned the names of plenty of abolitionists tonight uh, from from these uh, this time period which wasn't that long ago you know it was not that long ago (laughs) born into slavery near Newmarket, Maryland on December 23rd 1815 Henry Highland Garnett escaped from bondage via the Underground Railroad with his parents, George and Henrietta, trustee in 1824. After residing briefly in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, the family settled in New York City, New York, where George trustee changed the family name to Garnett. George Garnett found work as a shoemaker and joined the Methodist Episcopal Church. The Garnets lived among other working class families in what would later be called the Lower East Side. Henry's childhood was a mix of opportunities and difficulties. He attended the African Free School, which was one of the several schools established in northeastern cities by white philanthropists. His classmates included several future black abolitionist leaders such as Alex Xander Cromel, Samuel Ringgold Ward, James McCune Smith, and like all free blacks during the antebellum era, the Garnets were always in danger of capture by slave catchers. While Henry Garnett was at sea working as a cabin boy and cook, his parents narrowly escaped slave catchers who destroyed or stole the furniture from their home so they couldn't catch you, so they gone, oh man, man, straight up criminals. After he returned home, Garnett then suffered a debilitating leg injury that plagued him for the rest of his life. He found solace and inspiration in the church and joined the first colored Presbyterian church in New York, where he also found a community of abolitionists. Henry Highland Garnett married Julia Ward Williams, a teacher in 1841. The family moved frequently as Garnett pursued 
the ministry and teaching, as well as abolitionist activities. In 1843, Garnett became nationally prominent when he delivered an address at the National Negro Convention meeting in Buffalo. He urged the slaves to rebel and claim their own freedom. We had to watch our language. I'm not criticizing. I had to change my language too, but he urged the victims of slavery called slaves is a dehumanizing term, but he urged the victims of slavery to rebel and claim their own freedom. In 1864, Garnett became pastor of the 15th Street Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C. on Sunday, February the 12th, 1865. Garnett preached a sermon in the U.S. House of Representatives. Although he did not address Congress, his presentation was the first by African-American in the Capitol building. So look, let me point out right quick, Mr. Garnett wasn't concerning himself with what was legal and what was not because right now, 13th Amendment says that slavery and involuntary servitude is legal as punishment for crime. And Mr. Garnett urged the victims of slavery to rebel and claim their own own freedom. What a great American. What a fighter for liberty and justice. He didn't care about anybody coming after him for, you know, his bold words. He was an agitator for, for freedom. We talking about slavery now. In 1864, Garnett became pastor of the 15th Street Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C. on Sunday, February 12, 1865. Garnett preached his sermon in the U.S. House. Okay, skipping over that. Uh, In 1868, Garnett moved to Pittsburgh, where he briefly served as president of Avery College, a school of religious education for African Americans. Originally originally an opponent of the colonization movement by the mid-19th century, Garnett shifted his support to the migration of black Americans to Liberia. In December 1881, President James A. Garfield appointed Garnett minister or ambassador to Liberia. Garnett moved to the West African nation but died on February the 13th, barely two months after his arrival. So I do just want for historical um, posterity is point out that that movement to uh, push uh, former victims of slavery uh, back to Africa, Liberia, that was funded by white people and it was supported by the U.S. government. Not saying nothing against Mr. Uh, Garnett and any of those who left and went to uh, Liberia, but um, it was not like a movement that was founded by the father of black nationalism, Martin Delaney, who I discussed earlier. So um, he at one time, that would have made Garnett an opponent of, of um, Delaney. And I guess also Frederick Douglass, because Frederick Douglass didn't didn't want to, you know, uh, wasn't behind that. But those who could leave, did leave, no matter who funded it, whether they funded it themselves, like um, Martin Delaney or, you know, some white people paid for them. I guess we call it reparations and help them found Liberia, a colony in in, uh, West Africa. All right, so new abolitionist radio salutes. Mr. Henry Highland Garnett, born again, 1815, and he died uh, in Liberia t- in 1882. Salute. Salute. Liberia.
right? And uh, we've only got a couple minutes, Scotty. Uh, should I, I'll make this very short. You can read the rest of this in its total, along with the photo that captures the moment. A new abolitionist radio. It's our segment for freedom's sake of history rebellion and we're remembering one of the most important events in the history of the african diaspora that's august 14 1791 the ceremony boy Karyaman, the beginning of the haitian revolution the boy Karyaman ceremony and subsequent insurrections are the results of months of planning and strategizing there are 200 slave leaders or enslaved leaders involved from around the north all hold privileged positions on their plantations most of them Commodores with influence and authority over other enslaved people. Through strategic maneuvering, these leaders successfully united a vast network of Africans, mulattoes, maroons, commodores, house slaves, field slaves, and free blacks. The Boy Karyaman ceremony takes place in a thickly wooded area where the slaves solemnize their pact in a voodoo ritual. The ceremony is officiated by a bowman, a maroon leader and voodoo priest from Jamaica and a voodoo high priestess. Various accounts from that night describe a tempestuous storm, animal sacrifices, and voodoo deities. However, over the centuries, the ceremony has become legendary. It is, it is important to note it can be difficult to distill fact from myth. But we remember that day here on New Abolitionist Radio. Scotty, any closing words for the evening, brother? Yes, uh, my closing words will be that slavery it was never abolished. Clearly, the Thirteenth Amendment is 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 evid is uh you know evidence number one, right there. I mean, if you have good reading comprehension, I don't see how anybody who is being honest and objective can read that and argue that slavery was abolished in the Thirteenth Amendment. I'm questioning your comprehension, your reading comprehension, reading words. It's not the same as reading comprehension. So that's evidence right there. And then the other evidence is the stories that we have brought you every Wednesday night at 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern time on Black Talk Radio Network for the past five hours in the five years, I mean, five past five years. How many shows have we might have missed? Maybe five or less max. So, you know, we definitely been documenting this. This is evidence. These stories, these news stories, uh, can you can actually use those to trigger legal action. And we've been collecting that information. And, you know, others have been sharing since we um, uh, fostered uh, some abolitionism meet and greeting on uh, social media through Move to Abolish 21st Century Slavery. And people just come in at us with all this information and different perspectives and, and different strategies and suggestions and what have you and it's, it's just really been a great experience to see all of that that grow and even though it's on it's a little over 2,000 uh, people on that particular in that particular group but again we don't need 100% of the world's unity on anything if you if you have a righteous cause, if, if you have, you know, according to your moral code, it's, it's you know, an uh, issue like slavery. I mean, that is something right there cut and dry. You either for slavery or you against it. And there's no arguing and saying, well, it's not really slavery. It's kind of similar to, no, it's slavery. And so either you for it or you against it. You either blue or you gray, if you get my meaning. 
And I'll be doggone as a United States veteran, as a survivor of the Gulf War. I'll be doggone if I'm going to be pledging allegiance and saluting any kind of flags while terrorists who have been around for 140 something years. I just ask y'all simply, will ISIS be permitted? ISIS sympathizers here in the United States. They can't even throw up an ISIS flag on Facebook without being uh, branded a terrorist and, and charges not far behind. Do you think they will be given permits by an official in a government under the jurisdiction of the United States? Do you think they would get a permit to go have a, a rally so that they can persuade people to, to their extremism? We're talking about extremism here. So I'm, I'm just saying I hope as many people as possible will be there on August the 19th for this historic abolitionist uh, march and rally. That's about the 13th Amendment that has uh, permitted prison slavery. And we're we're just, you know, making a declaration that we want it. We want it in and how by any means necessary. So y'all can do it through laws in Congress Y'all can do it the right way because it's the right thing to do. And since the Republicans are in power, y'all can even play like y'all, the original abolitionists of Frederick Douglass and, and Lincoln. And y'all can talk about, dude, that's, that's your roots. Well, do something to end slavery and honor those roots or, instead of now being neo-Confederate sympathizers, violating your oath of office to uphold the Constitution, and I will point you to the 14th Amendment. That's all I got to say, Max. Um, I guess I'll follow suit with keeping it real simple. Uh, we are coming for peaceful reasons. We're trying to avoid catastrophes. We have decided collectively that we're tired of your lies. We figured out what the problem is ourselves. And now we want to work on solving that problem. And you don't have to believe us to support us. You can believe us over time. Work it out for yourself in your head, however long it takes. But at least check. At least question what you thought you knew and come to a different conclusion. Because like it or not, the abolitionists are coming. And we're not like what you just saw. You'll see the exact opposite. You know, people, right now we have the ear of the world. And if we're going, if all we're going to do is just be on national television or in public arguing with each other on behalf of political sides that don't even represent us, and we've wasted our chance. This is a chance. And on Saturday in D.C., as many as 15 cities will be presenting the core issue, addressing it, and offering a solution. Because we already know that abolition it's a reason for a revolution so we can finally know some peace. Peace. Just lift your eyes up. Let your wise rise up. See the signs of the times if it's time. Rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people. When those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil. When the feast that feeds you starves.
loves our father's children when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing rise up when famine claims millions when justice gives blind eyes to billions when the lord's anger is no longer feared if his protection is gone and your enemies are near if you've seen the seas spill over and the mountains shake break and fall if the moon ever turns blood red and you can't see the sun at all rise up no matter if the prize is high in the sky